0: Welcome to the Verbal to Visual podcast, a show about bringing ideas to life using words and images, and then doing cool things with those ideas that we just brought to life. Uh, I'm your host, Doug Neal, and I'm excited to have on the show today someone who uh, represents two of my biggest interests right now. One one is this world of, of visual thinking, and the other is the world of education. On the show today, I am chatting with Derek Bruff, who is an educator at the university level and is doing really cool things as an instructor in the math department, but who also plays a role within the Center for Teaching at Vanderbilt University. Um, so he's doing some cool things in the classroom with his students, but he's also helping other educators uh, do some interesting things in their classrooms as well. During our conversation, we chat about some big picture trends that that are going on in the world of education right now, particularly at the the college level, Um, things like the flipped classroom and uh, how the use of of technology is affecting what goes on inside and outside of, of the classroom. And after that conversation about the the world of education in in general, we we dig into the topic of visual thinking, starting with how Derek got involved in that world, and then moving on to how he is applying what he has learned in, in the classroom, as I mentioned, both as an instructor, but then also in his work with other instructors. So I think this is going to be a really great episode for those other educators that are out there and that are interested in incorporating more visuals into their classroom. But there's some really great stuff in here also for those that are working to develop this skill of of visual note-taking, of of sketchnoting themselves. We get at some of the core ideas of visual note-taking, of visual thinking. and talk about them in a way that I, I hadn't heard before. Derek has a lo- really cool perspective, it, and I like the way he approaches this topic. So there were some revelatory things that came out of this conversation for me, and I, I hope that you find the same. To follow along with this conversation, head on over to verbaltovisual.com slash episode 16, where I have shared some sketch notes that I took of our conversation, as well as a ton of links to all of the books and resources and and things that came up during our conversation. So head on over there to to check that out, and let's dive into the conversation. Derek Brough, welcome to the Verbal to Visual podcast. Thanks for, for joining us today. Very glad to be here. So let's let's start with kind of the the basic question of um, who who are you and and what do you do? Um, that yeah, that's a that's a good question. Um, I, I uh, uh, sometimes have
1: trouble describing this even within the university setting. Um, so I'm Derek Baroff. I'm the director of the Center for Teaching at Vanderbilt University. Um, that's my my primary job here. I'm also have a secondary appointment as a senior lecturer in the math department. Um, that one's a little easier to describe. Um, I, I, I have a PhD in math. Um, I've been teaching college-level math for years now. I continue to teach occasionally in the math department one course a year. Um, my main job, though, is running the Center for Teaching here. Um, and so uh, our, our mission is to uh, enhance the, the the teaching that happens here at Vanderbilt. And um, And so we do so primarily by working with faculty, um, working with the professors, the TAs, the instructors here on campus and helping them to develop and refine their teaching skills, to try out new things in the classroom, to get feedback on what they're doing um, as teachers. Uh, and so, you know, we do workshops and consultations and programs and events and, and generally, um, you know, marshal our resources to try to, um, I mean, our, our ultimate goal is enhancing the student learning experience here at Vanderbilt. Um, but we do so in some somewhat of an indirect way by working
0: with the, the faculty and helping them to, uh, to, to teach very well here. Very good. Very good. And what are some of the, I think with your... I think that gives you kind of a, a unique perspective that you have both those roles of um, working with educators via the the Center for Teaching, but then also still being in the classroom yourself. Uh, what are some of the trends that you're seeing right now in the world of, of higher education? That's a great question.
1: Um, I would say uh, there's kind of a long-term trend, in, sometimes described as this shift from teaching to learning, uh, in that... Um, uh, the the focus is less and less on kind of what the teacher does at the front of the classroom and, and more on um, what the students are doing, what the students are thinking, how the students are learning, what they're learning, what they're not learning. And so I think that's a pretty exciting uh, shift. A lot of that is fueled by, um, uh, you know, just increasing understanding of how learning works um, and how people learn uh, and um, leveraging some of that research, that cognitive science research, that psycho- psychological research. Um, in the teaching that we do uh, and so I would say that's kind of a, a longer term bigger trend uh, more recently it's kind of instantiated itself in um, in a, in, a in, in many different ways but but one of the terms that I hear a lot about lately is this idea of a flipped classroom and this is definitely something that um, I, you know it's it actually has been surprising to me how how many of my faculty here have asked me about this idea of the flipped classroom, have been talking about it, have been thinking about it, have been experimenting with it. I mean, I've been doing this kind of work for over a decade now, and I haven't seen any other pedagogical buzzwords or trends or ideas um, kind of propagate as fast as this flipped classroom idea. Hmm.
0: So So describe for our listeners what exactly a flipped classroom is. uh,
1: So the kind of classic model is that, you know, in, 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 In certain courses, this is most common in the sciences, but it happens in other fields as well. Class time is spent um, with the instructor lecturing to the students, introducing them to the material. Uh, And then students go off after class and they work through problems and homework sets, maybe write papers and try to kind of make sense of all that information that they were introduced to during class. The, The flipped model kind of, well, flips that around a little bit. And so the idea is that students get that first exposure to material before they come to class, either through reading their textbook or increasingly through some type of online video content, either made by the instructor or maybe curated by the instructor. Um, And so they they come to class having some exposure to the material. And then class time is spent in a more active way, uh, having students kind of do what they used to do outside of class, work through problems, talk to each other, get feedback from the instructor. But the idea is that, you know, if you think about, you know, here at Vanderbilt, I'll teach a Monday, Wednesday, Friday class, 50 minutes a day, three days a week. I've got 150 minutes of FaceTime with my students, right? Where we're all in the same place at the same time. And so I think at the heart of the flipped classroom is this idea of how can we make the best use of that time? And, and, uh, And a lot of faculty are thinking, well, I'd much rather have students kind of digging into the material, doing something with it, practicing, getting feedback, making sense of all of that material. Let's do that in class when we're all together to help each other. And we can take some of that kind of information transmission stuff and shift that outside of class time. And so I'm, I'm seeing a, an increasing number of faculty, particularly in the sciences, but again, elsewhere, too, who are kind of embracing this model. Um, some of them are a little intimidated by it. You know, if I'm not going to be lecturing in class, what am I going to be doing, right? They've got to come up with a, a new game plan for class and a new way of thinking about their own role as an instructor. Other faculty are really excited. They're, they're glad they don't have to kind of spend their whole class time lecturing anymore. Um, they can now uh, kind of do the kinds of interactive work with students that really
0: excite them. Yeah, it does seem like that that question of teachers asking themselves and even, I'm sure, parents, administrators, a lot of folks digging into that question of what's the role of the teacher now with all these different resources that that are available. Um, and, yeah, I, I see that the, the flipped classroom is, is one of the – Examples of ways that are experimenting, how folks are experimenting, using the tools that are available to in some ways uh, shift the way the learning process is going. And that maybe that example does seem like one, I guess, kind of a a small tweak to the system as it currently exists. Uh, Have you noticed any other trends that are... I guess more radical shifts away from f- the system as as we've known it, due to all of these these tools and technologies that that are now available.
1: Ah, uh, wow. Well, uh, you know, I would say for a lot of faculty, the flipped classroom is a is a pretty radical shift, actually. <laughs> Um, and, uh, and, and I would say, I, I should also clarify, this idea behind the flipped classroom that you have students get some first exposure before class and come to class and do more active things. It's not new, right? I mean, the, the buzzword is new and the energy around it is new. Um, but certainly folks in the humanities and in English class, this is, this is how they teach class actually. Students do the reading and come class and discuss. Um, I think what's, what's been new and exciting about it in, in part is the technology piece. And so it is increasingly um, easy for faculty to either create their own lecture videos for students to watch ahead of time or to find good content available online. And so I think having students engage with video content as a pre-class activity has gotten a lot easier in the past couple of years. And so that's been that's been a big shift. Um, And I think if you want to talk talk revolution, um, I I think where where I see a lot of um, worry and excitement, uh, depending on who you talk to, is this idea that, you know, if, if, if mainly what a student gets at a university is, is lectures in the classroom, um, increasingly they can find that on their own outside of class online somehow. There, there's really great lecture-like video content online available in many different places, right? Between TED Talks and the Khan Academy and all these free and open online courses that are being launched, there's a lot of content like that out there. And so I think more fundamentally universities are having to kind of grapple with this question well, if that's not what we're doing, right, w- what value do we add to the learning experience beyond um, explanatory lectures, right? Um, uh, and so, uh, uh, and that's where I think we're starting to see, um, like I say, some excitement, but also some worry uh, as universities are trying to kind of reposition themselves in this new landscape, Um and, and make sure that they, they really can add a lot of value beyond just that kind of transmission of information. Um, transmission used to be a much harder challenge than it is now, certainly. Um, and so a lot of universities are thinking very hard about about what kinds of interactions they have among students and among faculty and students um, that really add value to the process. And so the flipped classroom is kind of one version of that is a way to kind of think about the classroom as a space where this can happen.
0: Um, yeah. Hmm. So I would I, I would like to... Uh, get into some of the ideas around visual thinking and, and visual note taking because that's how I first uh, came across your work. And as I envision the the audience for for this podcast and the folks that are interested in, in learning the skill of of sketch noting, of visual note taking, I've I've seen a relatively high proportion of those people being college students. Uh, so it's interesting to think about both the development of, of that skill and the context of some of these trends going on in, in higher education. But before we get into your experience in, in that realm, um, are, are there other useful things to, to kind of set the stage for, for that conversation? Other things that you're seeing through your work in the Center for Teaching and, and your work as a math instructor uh, that you think might contribute to that, that conversation?
1: Yeah, a, a couple of more trends that uh, certainly aren't as kind of prevalent as the flipped classroom, but uh, but I think they're they're really interesting. Um, one is um, uh, one is more technology focused. At least the way that I see it, I think a lot about the use of technology in college and university teaching. Um, and so, technology. One of the things that technology can do for us is to connect us with other folks who are interested in what we're interested in, and to kind of give us a platform to share our ideas and our thoughts. Um, Uh, in words and or pictures. Uh, And so I'm seeing uh, a lot of faculty who are interested in having their students use technology, whether it's blogs or YouTube channels or what have you, um, to actually take some of the kind of the academic conversations they're engaging with here on campus and share them with a broader audience outside in the world. Um, And so um, I I, I tend to think of the idea of authentic audiences as a piece of this. Um, If you look at a kind of a, a more traditional college classroom a student might write a five-page paper, and that paper would generally only be read by one person on the planet—the instructor, right? And they'll grade it, they'll give them some feedback, and then it kind of vanishes from the face of the planet. Um, I mean, I still have a few of my five-page papers tucked away in a file somewhere. Who's going to read those, right? Um, but uh, increasingly, I'm seeing faculty who who realize, well, you know, what if we had students actually writing for a real audience out there—that um, was um, either either within the classroom, writing for their peers. Or within the campus, you know, writing or kind of more generally producing things um, of value around campus, or maybe even beyond that and writing for a a much more public audience. And again, with technology blogs, video channels, things like that, this is a lot easier than it used to be. Um, I mean, I remember in fifth grade, I had to write a letter to to the editor of my local newspaper, right? That was the only kind of non-academic audience I ever wrote for. Um, But now, you know, you set up a course blog and ask your students to start writing about what they're learning about, and odds are there's some folks out there who are interested in hearing what they have to say and maybe even kind of starting the conversation. Um, And so there's a term that I use a lot that I got from uh, Randy Bass at Georgetown University. Um, He talks about social pedagogies. Um, This is the idea of asking students to um, uh, kind of construct their knowledge by representing that knowledge for an authentic audience. And you don't have to have technology to do that. But I think that's one good use of technology. And, uh, and so I'm seeing a lot of, a lot of faculty who are ha- asking students to do, do this very work. I mean, uh, I'll share one example from my own class. So I, I teach a really fun first-year writing seminar, which is kind of a weird thing for a mathematician to do. Um, but uh, here at Vanderbilt, uh, every, every student in the College of Arts and Science has to take a first-year writing seminar, and every department has to offer one. And so math has to pony up a first-year writing seminar every year. And so I volunteered for this a couple of years ago, and I really love it. It's a course on cryptography, codes and ciphers. And so um, it's called The History and Mathematics of Cryptography. So there's some history. There's some pure math. There's some code-breaking and puzzle-solving. And then there's this writing piece. And frankly, there's also a lot of current events, given the state of national security Um uh, uh, efforts uh, to uh, read emails and such. And so it's, it's a really relevant course, which is fun. Um, a couple years ago, I had my students um, write, uh, I, I asked them to pick a code or a cipher from history and to write this kind of treatment of it. You know, Where did it come from? Who invented it? How did it work? Um, how did people crack it? Did it influence other codes and ciphers down the way? So kind of a historical uh, a, a look at particular codes and ciphers. Um, there's another faculty member here at Vanderbilt, Holly Tucker, who runs this blog called, called Wonders and Marvels. And she looks at, she, it's a group blog. They, she's got 10 or 12 contributors and they kind of write on uh, kind of curiosities of, of the history of science and medicine. And so my students' were kind of fit to her blog. And so I invited, she invited my students to actually submit their writing to her blog. And uh, she gave them feedback and, you know, if they, if they made the changes that their editor suggested, she would publish it. Um, and so, uh, about half of my students kind of made it through that whole process, right? They they submitted their work to me, and I graded it, and 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 that was fine. But half of them kind of pushed forward and got it got it up on her blog. Um, she has, I think, like six thousand readers a month for her blog, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Um, and so my students, these were you know eighteen year old freshmen who were kind of writing for a very public audience, who was very interested in in the stuff they were writing about. Um, and then one of my students, his post got picked up and republished with his permission. On a site called io9 which does kind of pop culture and science and science fiction um and they have i don't know six 60, visitors a month or i mean six i mean just gobs and gobs of people and so uh that was pretty neat right so here's my you know here's my fr- here's this freshman you know writing an, an academic paper right uh he's got citations and everything um but it ends up being read by tens of thousands of people because of this hmm. And so this is exciting, right? I mean, this, this isn't just kind of a busy work paper that, that my students have to turn in. They're, I, I'm connecting them with the, these authentic audiences. And I think it makes the whole process a lot more meaningful and valuable for the students. Um, they really have to
0: – it motivates them to raise their game um, in pretty helpful ways.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm seeing the direct analogy, kind of like how you mentioned writing to your – was it your local newspaper? Is that who you connected I, <laughs> with in your – Uh, early school days at some point. I I kind of remember that same idea of that being kind of the only way to get yourself out of the classroom and and do work as a student that is seen outside of the classroom is within your local community. But now the sense of, of community has of course broadened exponentially because of the web so that you can really target and, any, any specific field, really, you can kind of dig in, which is kind of cool that um, you're able to, to take something like a writing seminar focusing on mathematics in, in some way and dig into a topic in, in great depth and still find an audience online. Even if it's not your own audience, you can use those platforms that already exist that other people have created to then then share that work to that bigger audience that's very cool what um yeah what what have you seen what sort of reactions do you have you seen in students those who go through that that process and and get their work out there both kind of the immediate reaction and then if you've seen any anything that kind of comes down the line for those students that resulted from that that (laughs) opportunity and it might be too early to to know how that has a long-term impact, but I'm curious what what you've seen so far.
1: Yeah, um, I, yeah, I don't know that I can speak much to the long-term impact. I'm mean, I'm sure at some point later I'll I'll think of an example, not from my own course because that was only a couple of years ago, but um, perhaps from other courses. But um, I think for students initially, and for some of them, this you know this kind of approach. Um, uh, we we used a term for it here at, at the Vanderbilt Center for Teaching last year. We, we, we had this uh, theme year called Students as Producers, um, you know, engaging students, not just in the consumption of knowledge um, and information, but kind of the production of knowledge um, and, and the sharing of knowledge. Uh, and so I think it makes a lot of sense at, at, a, at a university, right? I mean, this is what the faculty do. They're always engaged in the production of knowledge. And so engaging students in that makes a lot of sense for a lot of folks. For some students, it's, it's a little of a bit of a challenge. Um, they're, they're often used to, or they're sometimes used to kind of a schooling system where most of what they need to do is show up and memorize stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and so again, that, that you know, we, don't, we don't really need to do as much of that as, as we used to. Um, uh, being able to, to take something you've learned and then do something with it, right? Make something from it. Uh, that's a much more valuable process these days. Um, I mean, it was always valuable, but but now um, uh, there's, there's I think, a renewed focus on this. Um, and so uh, for some students, you know, they've done very well in school by, by just memorizing lots of stuff. And so when you ask them, okay, we're going to make this thing and it's going to be this collaborative effort and we're going to do it for this real audience, um, some of them would rather just kind of show up, take notes and leave. Um, and so there's always a little bit of pushback from students. Um, now, I would say most of those students get convinced over the course of the semester that this is actually a lot more fun, it's a lot more meaningful, it's a lot more enjoyable. Um, they have something to show for it when they're done, right? Um, and I will say this kind of gets at the long-term impact. Um, you know, for students, you know, if you're if you're gonna finish college and go on the job market and your potential employers are gonna search for you online and see what they see, right? I mean, students these days are pretty savvy. They know not to put pictures of their, you know, um, poor behavior mm-hmm. online mm-hmm. Um, they're, they're careful about privacy settings in ways they weren't even four or five years ago um, but I think what this type of approach of teaching does is it gives them an opportunity to build up their 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 professional digital identity right and so when when future employers uh, search for them online um, they'll see really interesting work that they've done in college right it's 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 serious academic work it's of interest to real people it shows the skills that they've developed. And so I think for some students, this has really helped open some doors um, because they really start developing essentially this online portfolio um, uh, early on. Um, And so it kind of sets them up for success down the road. So most students get on board and get really excited about it. Uh, Many of them are excited right from the get-go, right? I'm like, oh, I don't have to just memorize stuff in this class. We're actually going to create something. Um, They get pretty excited about that, many of them. Hmm.
0: Now, with your work at the um center for for teaching does that focus exclusively on um higher education and there within the professors at at vanderbilt i asked that question because i'm curious and i have seen firsthand uh in in students at the high school level kind of a, a resistance when you transition away from the the primary book learning and and testing the information that they read about in books to something a bit more active and and creative. Since I I hear more and more people at at different levels shifting towards the students as producer type model of of education um, at the higher levels, but I'm I'm curious if that shift is making its way kind of down down Mm -hmm. the line so that rather than having to – kind of readjust students to a new way of, of, of learning and a new kind of basis for their system of education, that it kind of just stays that way from, from early ages on, since even in the early grades, there's a lot of creating and active stuff that we do. Um, so have you noticed... Any shifts, or is that even within the realm of the, the scope of the work that you're doing, kind of what's going on at earlier stages in the education process? So I would say that most of my work is focused at the
1: college and university level. Certainly in terms of kind of my day job, that's where I focus. That, that's my scope, right? And so we do a lot of work here at Vanderbilt, but we, you know, we, we interact with faculty and, and, and scholars and students at other institutions as well. In terms of the, the K-12 world, the, the pre-college world, um, I, I would say there's definitely some of this happening. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I know some really fantastic um, middle school and high school educators, uh, mainly through Twitter um, and blogs that I've connected with, um, who, are, who are certainly engaging their students in, in this kind of work. Um, I know the flipped classroom has really taken off, particularly in um, middle school and high school math teaching. Um, it's, it's kind of just as much of a a trend there as it is in the university setting. So, so I'm, I'm seeing some good stuff. I think, I think balancing that, um, here in the U S we've got, um, a a real emphasis at the K 12 level on, um, standards and assessment and testing. And there are some good reasons for a lot of that, but, um, I think sometimes it, 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 it inhibits engaging students in more creative work, um, in more kind of production type work. Um, I think there's a there's a solution there. I think often the the skills and knowledge, the skills that students develop, and the knowledge that students gain through creative, productive, generative type work, um, they learn a lot while they do this, right? And then they could probably go take a test and do quite well in that test. Um, it may not be a one for one match in terms of certain content areas, but certainly the skills they they develop are are really solid and would reflect well on more kind of standardized assessment techniques. Um, and so I think for at the K twelve level, there's this challenge of um, engaging students in meaningful, interesting learning activities that also hit these standards. And again, there are some some teachers who are doing a great job of meeting that challenge. Um, but I don't think it's quite obvious how to pull all that off. And so when I look at, you know, I've got two kids in the in the public school system here in Tennessee, and and they have great schools. But but I see a pressure to kind of focus on these end of year standardized tests in ways that sometimes isn't that great. Um, but then I look at my own. I've got a, a rising fifth grader, and she did this really. They they do this thing, this uh, uh, living wax museum activity at her school where all the the kids pick a a figure from history and they have to dress up like this figure and they kind of strike a pose in the hallway when the, the parents are invited to come and a parent will tap them on the shoulder and they come to life and they tell the biography of this person. Um, I mean, they, you know, my daughter loved it, right? She picked Marie Curie and she was totally into it. She could tell you everything there is to know about Marie Curie and why she's important and, and what she did. And she thought long and hard about the right pro- props to have and the right costume. And so, you know, these, these activities can really work for students. Um, I think, like I say, the challenge for teachers is to, how to make, is to make sure that they're hitting the standards they need to hit, um, but engaging students in creative and in meaningful ways.
0: Yeah so let's let's dig now into uh, your experience with the world of, of visual thinking and the way that you have used that in your own instruction but then also how you are working with with teachers who want to incorporate more uh visual aspects into into their teaching um let, let's start first how, how did you first come across the idea of, of visual thinking um and kind of your early experiences with that realm in the, the education setting? Uh, so I would say my first
1: experience, although I didn't realize it at the time, was probably, I think I was kind of high school age. Uh, I was really into comic books. Um, and uh, I read, at that point, it was it was pretty new, Scott McCloud's book, Understanding Comics. Great and, book. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty amazing. And it kind of blew my mind at the time. And, and really one of the things he does in that, in that book, and it, it is a comic, right? So he's using words and pictures to um, explain how we use words and pictures to communicate ideas and share stories. Uh, And so when he, he does this kind of unpacking of the visual language of comics and, you know, what happens between the panels in a comic strip and how that little white space between the panels is kind of how time and movement happen in our mind's eye. Um, Just brilliant stuff. Or the, um, the use of uh, kind of more cartoony characters um, as as kind of a, a, a way to engage the reader because anyone, you know, Charlie Brown has so few actual features to his his look, right? He's just kind of a round head with some hair um, that it's easy for people to kind of see themselves there, where if you have a highly rendered, uh, very detailed figure in a, in a comic, it's obviously someone else, right? It's obviously not you. And so those types of things, kind of seeing how visuals are used in, in, in comics to tell stories, to engage the reader, to, um, to to convey information, um, really started kind of getting me thinking. I was, I was more of a, you know, I took a few art classes in high school and I really loved drawing. And, um, and then I went off to college and majored in math and computer science. And there wasn't a lot of space for the artistic. I tried to pick a, I, I took a couple of art appreciation courses at college, but, my own art production was something that I kind of walked away from at that point. Fast forward years later, here I am, I'm working at the Center for Teaching. Um, I, uh, I think it was a, a presentation I, I, I was going to give on how to, how to, a workshop on how to give good presentations. Um, and so I picked up uh, Gar Reynolds' book, Presentation Zen, and, uh, a, and he's got great advice in that book on how to give a more visually interesting presentation. Um, And so the way that he talked about using photos, particularly to convey, um, kind of to use them as, as, uh, as, as metaphors, right? So you have this kind of hard concept that you're trying to convey. You find the right visual metaphor to help your audience understand it. And then you find a really beautiful photo that kind of captures that visual metaphor for you. Now, when you're standing up in your presentation and you're talking over here and you have this beautiful photo up on the screen behind you, you've got these kind of two streams of information coming at your audience. And and the visual metaphor helps your audience member actually understand what you're saying and remember it, because they've got not only your words, but this picture to hang on to in their their mind's eye. Um, And so that kind of opened up the door to thinking, okay, there's a lot particularly in higher education, um, it's not true of all disciplines, but for many disciplines, they're highly verbal, right? We talk, we write, we talk, we write. This is what we do in the classroom. This is what we do in our scholarship. Um, I think there's a real opportunity for a lot of higher education faculty to embrace the visual a little bit more and to use it to help students understand things, to remember things, to have students engage in visual production activities that help them learn. And so that kind of got me going. On, on this idea of visual thinking and visual learning in higher education. Uh, and so I started doing more reading. I connected to some folks here on campus. Um, there's this uh, really fantastic graphic facilitator, um, Peter Durand, who's based here in Nashville and, and has worked for Vanderbilt in the past. Um, and so I got to meet with him and talk with him about kind of how he does graphic facilitation and sketchnoting. Um, and that's what got me on the sketchnoting uh, path. And so there were all these kind of things. And then, you know, I'm doing reading and I keep coming across references to Scott McCloud's work. And so I dig my copy of Understanding Comics back out and I'm like, oh, of course, right? This is what Scott McCloud was talking about, you know, 20 years ago. Um, and so that's kind of how it came to be. And so I, I, in the past few years, I, I've focused a lot of my kind of professional energies on thinking about how to help faculty embrace the visual more in the teaching uh, that they do. Um, again, some of it's stuff they do, right? How to, how to have a more visual presentation, um, uh, you know, PowerPoint slides that actually you know, complement your spoken delivery and not compete with. Uh, some of it is visual engagement techniques, having students kind of create visuals that help them learn. And then more recently, this idea of, of using sketch notes in the classroom um, and trying to kind of equip students with a note-taking practice that might help them get more out of their
0: their their classroom experiences. Hmm. So what's kind of a, a first step that you take um, with with educators that want to start? using more visuals in in the classroom I mean you, you mentioned some uh, great books it sounds like even just like looking through presentations and would be a, a good start for for teachers but um, for for teachers that want to kind of just get a good a, a quick start using that where, where do you kind of start when you're talking with teachers about how to start using that in the classroom yeah um. Uh, good, good question. I would say for a lot of faculty, you
1: know, I always try to think about kind of wh- whether it's with my own students, kind of where are they, where are they coming from, what do they understand, what are their worldviews? Um, or when I'm working with faculty, the same kind of thing. Where are they, what are they used to thinking about when it comes to teaching and learning? Kind of what are their, what are the teaching methods they're already comfortable with? For a lot of faculty, you know, their bread and butter is giving lectures during class. Um, and as I said, we're seeing a shift away from that. Um, in terms of flipped classrooms and other, other ideas. But for a lot of faculty, that's, that's what they're really comfortable doing. Um, and, and I will say, when, when we as a center give a workshop on how to give a good PowerPoint presentation, we get really good attendance, right? It's something faculty are looking for. I think we've all experienced death by PowerPoint. We've probably all been guilty of death by PowerPoint. And so for a lot of faculty, they, they, they at least hope that there's a better way out there. <laughs> they may not have seen it yet. Um, But that's what happened when I read presentations in, right? It was like, oh, I could do PowerPoint like this, right? It doesn't have to be a bunch of text on the slide. Um, Here's another model that's really beautiful and really engaging and helps my audience understand what the heck I'm talking about. And so for a lot of faculty, that's a good first step is to think, okay, let's do a PowerPoint makeover. Let's kind of talk about a few key principles about you know, cognitive load. You don't want to have a bunch of text on the screen competing with what you're saying because your brain's going to be you know, your audience's brain is going to have to process the words you say and the words on your, on your slide, and that's, that's competitive, right? What if you had an image? What if you had a graphic that would complement instead of compete? How would you go about doing that, right? And so for some faculty, this idea of a visual metaphor is really powerful. Um, and so I teach them how to find images, Creative Commons images on Flickr that they can use, how to search for the right kind of image that'll complement their uh, their content. Um, for some faculty, that doesn't make as much sense. But for a lot of faculty, that's a nice first step is to think, okay, how can I start to take a more visual approach to my own delivery of information? Um, I would say for other faculty, um, they're more interested kind of at the get-go in helping students do things visually more. Um, and so often there, a nice first step is the idea of a concept map. Uh, and so... our. Have you have you heard that term before? I have, yeah. Okay, um, so so for your listeners, uh, it's a pretty simple idea, right? You've got uh, some kind of content domain that you're you're focused on, um, you know, linear algebra or you know some piece of chemistry or or some topic in sociology, and you have students write down concepts associated with that topic, and those are the nodes in this little graph, right? So you have these concepts all over the page. And then you draw lines between concepts and on the lines you label the relationships between the concepts. And so it's a pretty simple structure. Um, but what it does is it, is it prompts students to start to see, okay, what do I know about this topic? What do I don't know? What, what don't I know? What are some of the connections and relationships I, I'm, I'm already aware of? Um, are there missing ones, right? Um, we know that students, as they learn, need to develop pretty robust Uh, what are sometimes called knowledge organizations. They need to have kind of a mental model of what they're learning and how things are connected to each other. And the concept map is a really beautiful tool for helping them uh, create a visual, kind of physical representation of that mental model. It prompts them to develop their own mental models and make them more robust. And it gives the instructor a real sense, okay, you can look at a bunch of these concept maps and start to look for patterns in your students thinking. Okay. What concepts are they getting? What relationships are they not seeing yet? And how can I help them kind of, uh, grasp those relationships? And so if you want to have students think more visually, a concept map is often a nice kind of first place to go. Um, you can have students, you know, concept map, everything they know so far in a course, right? I mean, the, not everything, but kind of the higher level concepts in a course, have them do that a few times during the semester, um, and they and kind of see how their understanding of the course content grows and changes over time. That's a pretty nice strategy. Um, yeah, so I, so I think those are a couple of first steps um, that can be helpful, depending on kind of where the faculty member's coming from.
0: Yeah, that, that sounds like even using, using something like concept maps, both for student-generated concept maps throughout... A unit, but then also I could see that being a great uh, kind of assessment tool towards towards the end. I always think of uh, Richard Feynman's quote um, about not being not feeling like he understood some physical concept. He was a very famous. Physicist and crazy character who's written some some awesome books, um, yeah. but like he couldn't understand it unless he could build it, unless he could like build up a system kind of from from scratch. And I think that encouraging students to to do that throughout the the learning process, that that active process of of building this model of some even if it's something just purely information based, the the structure of information and concepts is a really cool way to to get at that. And I remember the first time that that I came across the idea of of concept maps. I mean, I think I had seen some as, as a student, but not really yeah. known or remembered that name. But when I was back getting my um, teaching degree, I latched on right away to that idea of, of concept maps. And that was before I had heard anything about sketchnoting or graphic recording, but I just loved that idea of uh, being able to to map out information in in that way. And I kind of see that as, as for me, kind of one of the first precursors that then yeah, yeah. made me so interested in sketchnoting um, and, and graphic recording, because it's like, whoa, okay, this is like concept maps, kind of on steroids a little bit, just with yeah, yeah. the ability well, to incorporate it, you more. Asked about, you
1: asked about first steps, and I think both of these ideas, kind of, can you find a Creative Commons image on Flickr? that helps you, that works as a visual metaphor for some hard concept you're trying to convey, right? If That's one task. Another task is, can you concept map a particular topic um, and, start to see, and start to visualize the relationships among kind of subtopics there? Both of those activities, I think, are somewhat non-threatening for faculty or students because they don't really require any sense of artistic skill. Right. In the one hand, you are selecting someone else's images, which is an easier task than trying to produce your own. And in the other, you're just drawing circles and lines, right? So Mm -hmm. so it's not, they're not intimidating, but they both develop the kind of visual thinking. I would say two different kinds of visual thinking that then you can leverage in other activities, particularly sketchnoting, right? On the one hand, how can you represent an idea with some visual metaphor that maybe down the road, you actually doodle yourself, right? You create yourself. And on the other hand, how do you represent visually relationships among ideas, right? Or... Um, or kind of the structure of something, right? Um, and again, that's something you see a lot in sketchnotes as well, is using the, the kind of the white space in front of you, this page, not in a very linear way, but in a nonlinear way to help to convey relationships and structure. Um, and so I think both of those are nice first activities because they, uh, they they kind of help you develop skills that you can then use in other types of visual thinking activities.
0: Hmm. I like that a lot as, as a way to, to introduce folks to to this whole idea of of visual thinking because i get that question and that reaction a lot when i first describe sketching describe sketch noting or or show someone's some sketch notes and graphic recordings that are that are out there is it immediately it's that fear of drawing and um, a certain resistance and in some ways reluctance to even start down that path because of the idea that it will take too long or they don't have the skills to be able to make that happen, but I think that the approach that you're talking about, both, as you said, is very um, non-threatening and also gets at what I think are kind of a, the core benefits of, of sketchnoting in the first place. Th- those two things in, in particular, visual metaphors and providing some sort of visual structure, a concept map to, to information, uh, it, it seems to me that those are the, the, the two components that most engage the brain and provide the, the learning and, and problem-solving benefits of, of sketchnoting more so than like digging down into like fancy handwritten typography and really detailed sketches and uh right. the more kind of finely tuned aesthetics that you you see you can see in people that are really good at sketchnoting that have been doing it for for a long time um do you, do you agree with that, that those kind of two components are, when you think about kind of sketchnoting and graphic recording in, in a broader sense, that those are two of the, the biggest strengths in terms of the, the benefits of, of engaging in sketching out ideas in that way, visual metaphors, and then the kind of getting that structure down?
1: I would say yes. I mean, the, the, those to me are, are kind of the, the two big kind of components of visual thinking um, that sketchnotes brings out. And as you say, a lot of folks are intimidated. And I would say, to get back to the kind of producer comment, right? So so I think sketchnotes are primarily, you know, I do sketchnotes for me first because they help me understand and remember and see structure. Now, If my sketchnotes are kind of pretty enough, I will share them publicly, right? Because other people might find them useful, particularly if they went to the same talk or thinking about the same topic. Um, Now, if I'm going to share them publicly, then that raises the game, I think, on the artistic quality, right? And so what that means, though, is a lot of sketchnotes you see online are ones that are actually kind of pretty. Right, uh, And so that can be intimidating for folks. I, I, I got to lead my first workshop for faculty on sketchnotes at Indiana University um, back in April, um, and I realized kind of halfway through that I was, sh- based on the reaction from the faculty in the room, I was sharing too many pretty examples. They were <laughs> mm-hmm. all kind of intimidated, mm-hmm. and so I thought, okay, next time I do this, I've got I've to show some, some sketchnotes that, that aren't kind of made to be shared sh- showed publicly, right, um, but are still helpful because they do this, these two things, right? the visual metaphors and the structure. As I told those faculty, we all have a third-grade art education, right? <laughs> <laughs> we may have more, but we pretty much all have at least a third-grade art education. And if you're just doing stick figures and circles and lines, right, all you need is a third-grade art education to do that. And that's how you get the value out of these two types of visual thinking. You can do that with very simple drawings and diagrams, um, but you still get the you get to that visual metaphor. You get to that kind of structural piece. And I would say also, um, you know, if you, if you think about uh, – I know you're familiar with Bloom's taxonomy, right? This idea of kind of categorizing different kinds of educational uh, outcomes. And there's a couple of categories in Bloom's taxonomy that we hear a lot about. One is helping students understand things, and then the other one is kind of the analyze level, where, where the way I see those is it, it's at the understand level, you're really taking one concept or one idea, and you're seeing if students understand it at a, at a deep way and can, and, and can make sense of it. At the analyze level, the question there is, can students put things together? Right. In the old version of Bloom's taxonomy, it was called synthesis, which I think was maybe a, a little bit more descriptive, but it's really about the relationships among things. Um, and so if you're talking about one idea, one concept, then a visual metaphor is a useful tool often for helping you kind of grasp that concept and remember it. If you're talking about the relationships among many ideas, right? That's the analyzed level of Bloom's taxonomy, and that's where you get to these knowledge organizations to the structural piece. Um, and again, visual thinking can help with that as well, too. So, so I think it maps on quite nicely to some some very common educational outcomes that a lot of a lot of instructors w- w-
0: would make sense of. Yeah, I like I like that, and I think that I, I'm finding this conversation very interesting on on many levels. Uh, because I think that though I've seen, I feel like I've spent uh, quite a bit of time just looking at the resources that are out there, they're currently related to, to visual thinking. Um, great overviews of of this this topic um, and, and teaching people kind of the first steps and starting to, to sketch note. I'm thinking of like Mike Rohde's, the sketch note handbook, Sonny Brown's A Doodle Revolution. Um, pretty much all of, of, of Dan Rome's <laughs> books but I hadn't as, as I've read those books and as I've thought about how to incorporate those ideas into the educational setting I think you 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 have explained the the connection between those two better than than anyone I I have heard so far um, so it's it, thank you for that <laughs> for one <laughs> and, and it's great well, to see I think see those two fields merging together because the idea of of visual learners has been around for years in the education community. And one of the folks I chatted with on the podcast, a number of episodes back, Paula Wilkes talked about how 20 years ago, she was kind of teaching her, 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 I think it was fourth or fifth grade students, some starting, I guess, kind of the two the two main things that, that you just mentioned. One, developing some basic visual metaphors for individual concepts, uh, but then ways to combine those visuals into a map that shows the the structure of, of information. Um, so I imagine seeing... It'll be interesting to see as those two continue to merge and as more individuals via those books that I mentioned start to doodle more and, and share some of their their yeah. work and more educators see easier ways to incorporate that into the classroom, just kind of where that will will go in the future is kind of an exciting thing to to think about. Yeah.
1: Well you mentioned Dan Roman, I just wanted to second that. Now that I think about it, I would say it was his back of the napkin book that helped me especially with the, the structural piece of it, right? I mean, he's, uh, he's less about the visual metaphors and more about representing kind of complex relationships and connections through some visual structure. And so I think for, for listeners who, who already know about concept maps, but are perhaps looking for other schematical approaches to, to making sense of things, Back of the Napkin is a great read for that. Dan Rome's got tons of ideas for how to think about different types of relationships and how to represent them visually. Um, the other resource I might point to is uh, – and again, uh, I, I, I don't know. Your, your questions are helping me clarify these kind of two different strands in ways that I hadn't really thought about before. Um, another piece um, that I ran into several years ago, this other tool called uh, Visuals Speak, hmm. which is hard to say.
0: Oh, yeah. It, describe that. I think I know yeah, what you're talking so it's, about. Describe uh, um,
1: that. It's, a, it's a well – very well curated set of I think about 200 – laminated photographs. And they come in different sizes, right? Some of them are three by five, some of them are eight by 10. Um, they cover all different types of um, topics. There's photos of nature, there's photos of technology, there's photos of people. Um, and, uh, and the idea is that you can kind of walk into, um, I, I think of a classroom, although I'm, I'm sure they're useful in other settings, is to walk in a classroom and ask a, ask a question that requires students to kind of do this kind of metaphorical thinking. Um, and so, uh, and then you, you kind of, you, 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 lay out all these 200 photos and they've been curated for this kind of task, right? So there's so much diversity in the photos that students then just kind of sift through the pile of photos and try to find an image that speaks to them in some fashion. Um, and so I've used this with, uh, uh, we did this at freshman orientation a couple years ago with a group of students I was working with, right? What, what are you worried about college, right? Or what do you think college is going to be like for you? And they had to find a photo that kind of represented that idea. I mean, it could be a, it could be a literal representation, right? Uh, It, you know, could be, I don't know, lots of different, it could be a photo of a classroom, right? It could be a photo of a classroom with students in it. Um, Or uh, I know one of my favorite photos in this collection was this guy and he was, he's on a beach. He's totally not dressed for the beach. He's got this like heavy kind of cargo pants on and a big vest. He's got a metal detector. Right? And he doesn't fit in at all because he's doing something else on the beach. Right? He's looking. He's metal detecting. Right? He's not sunbathing. Um, and it's just this beautiful photo of someone who's passionate about what they do and are probably really good at it. But it's a little quirky and a little odd. And so that for some students, that's kind of what they feel college is going to be like. They're, they're going to be kind of the oddball on campus. Anyway, you can ask lots of different questions about it. Right? I'll, I'll use this with with new teaching assistants and say. Uh, What is what is it like to be a teaching assistant? What do you think it's going to be like to be in a teaching assistant and then you have to find a photo to represent it? Um, And so again, it gets at this visual metaphor idea And it's also really nice because students don't have to create their own image They can select from a well curated set of images um, that are likely to speak to them And so so cognitively it's it's not it's not as challenging of a task But it still taps into this kind of visual thinking visual metaphor idea Hmm.
0: That's great. Yeah, that sounds like a very useful resource for really just about any activity that, that you do in the classroom I'm i, I just flash back to uh, my, my student teaching experience um getting my uh, esol certification so also known as like esl and i remember being in a middle school classroom and Gosh, I'm trying to remember all the details, but I I remember just cutting out. I think it was it was from a National Geographic. I had a stack of National Geographic magazines that I had got from somewhere, and then remember cutting out a bunch of interesting photos and posting different ones around the room. And I think at first, just having students go around and and these are students that have varying levels of of English proficiency. Even just brainstorming the individual words that come down, that come to mind when they they see those visuals. And then I think we took each of those and then wrote a story or or, or did something with that after that, that brainstorming process. But the variety of ways in which you can use a single image, incorporate that into your lesson, or use that as a starting point for students to then leap into their their own thing that combines their personal experience and then whatever kind of content you're you're working on that that time during a lesson. That's a that's a powerful tool, I think.
1: Yeah, it's it's great fun. And then you you know you have students select the image that speaks to them. And then you go around and have them share, why did you pick that image, right? And so, yeah, and a lot of times, it depends on the question you're asking, but a lot of times, um, it really is interesting how they draw on their own points of view, their own personal experiences, their own history um, to make sense of these pictures. Uh, So it's, you know, it it can function in a lot of levels um, to help them think more visually, to help them understand the content better. Um, to, to you know foster a sense of community in the classroom as students are kind of more willing to share now that they've had this opportunity to do so in a pretty pretty safe manner, right? They don't They don't actually have to tell their own story, but they can if they want to. And they have this prop they can kind of use to, to help them t- tell their story. And so for some students it makes them a little bit more willing to share
0: something a little. Mm-hmm. I like that. I like that. So um, what else are you, are you seeing? Is there any other? Uh, topics that have come to mind throughout this this conversation, whether it be related to um, kind of the first part of this conversation about the what you're seeing in, in higher education, or things related to incorporating more visual thinking and visual tools into into the classroom. Other um, are other are topics or or things of interest that have come to mind.
1: Yeah, well, I'll try to pull together a couple of threads here because if you go back to Bloom's taxonomy, there's there's not a strict hierarchy, but you know, you, you want students to remember things, to understand things, to apply what they know to solve problems. Then there's the analyze level. There's the evaluate level, right, where they're kind of using the standards of your discipline to kind of judge quality of something. And then there's that create level, right? And then this gets back to the students as producers idea. Um, how can we engage our students in more creative activities where they are kind of producing or making something that may be interesting beyond the confines of the course? And there, too, I'm seeing some faculty explore more visually oriented uh, creation activities, right? And so, and again, I think given the role of visuals we see, just the role of kind of multimedia, multimodal content that we're used to experiencing online and on our TVs and wherever we see, um, you know, having students just write something, right? Now, don't get me wrong, writing is incredibly valuable, but I think for, for a lot of faculty and some students and some courses having a more multimodal kind of audio plus visual, um, textual plus visual production is, is more interesting and, and more shareable in some sense. And so let me give you a concrete example. Um, so I was teaching a stats course, a statistics course a couple of years ago. Um, and frankly, it was like, I don't know, the third or fourth time I taught this course and it was getting a little boring. And I wanted to add... Um, a new topic to the course and that was data visualization because that's something I see more and more these days of really clever ways to visualize data and tell stories with data and make sense of data um, uh, through different visualization techniques. Um, And so I had my students as their final project, um, previously what they had to do was to find some data set, do some statistical analysis and try to answer some interesting questions. And they would write this five to six page report um, where they shared their findings. This time around, I had them make an infographic. And so they had to construct uh, a visual representation of uh, their statistical project. Um, And they had to try to think about not only just how to engage the audience and make it look interesting, but how can you use things like uh, positioning or color, right, or size of something to convey meaning, right? And really, and this is a math course, right? So we're not talking visual metaphors here. We have to be pretty... precise in how we do these things. Um, And so, but it was a really, I think, an interesting exercise in using visual thinking um, uh, to create something, to produce something that, again, could be shared, because infographics are kind of designed to be shared and distributed online. That's where you see them. Um, And so having my students do this kind of creation level activity. Um, to do so in a public fashion, right? All the infographics got posted on my course blog um, and I would share them with my Twitter network so people could see these kind of interesting projects that my students were doing. And there, I think there was a a, a very particular role for the visual that was um, not only engaging to my students, but also very relevant to the particular course content that I was dealing with. And so when I think about faculty who are having their students do this kind of students as producers work, sometimes they go in the visual direction in ways that are really specific and, and appropriate to
0: their their discipline and their course content. That's great. That's great and highly, highly relevant, highly useful, <laughs> and I mean, look at any social media stream, be it Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or, or whatever, and one of the high percentage of things that you see shared are all these different types of, of data visualizations out there. Um, that's very, very cool. Have you looked into the the work of Edward Tuft? <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm really curious. I've seen a few of his things, and I've, I don't think I have one of his books yet, but he's on, on my reading list for... Yeah. Um, expanding my awareness of what's going on in, in this realm. And also because, well, math was one of the subjects that, that I was was teaching at the high school level. And I like the types of things that, that you are describing. Um, what's been your experience with, with Tufts work?
1: Oh, it's, it's, it's kind of mind blowing, right? And again, I think this is an area where uh, we're used to seeing certain types of charts and graphs that many people can produce with some efficiency in Excel, or another spreadsheet program, um, but if you've got really interesting data and really complex data, then often you need something beyond just the normal, you know, bar graph or line graph to help people kind of make, to help yourself make sense of it, right? Sometimes it's not just about pre- presenting or sharing, it's about kind of sifting through the data and trying to find patterns and stories there, um, and so I think, I would also say, again, for, for humanities faculty, for social science faculty, the visual metaphor often Kind of works really well for them. For the science and math and engineering faculty, they're not so much into the metaphors, right? But if you share with them something like Edward Tufte's work and they start to kind of see, oh, wait, I could do a lot more visually with data. Um, Then they get really excited. Um, It's it's really hard work, right? I mean, these sophisticated data visualizations are not easy, and they take a lot of
0: visual creativity and a lot of understanding of the data and the content itself.
1: Hmm. And Um, I
0: imagine the tool, the data visualization tool as well, with a little bit higher barrier to entry than... Right. Something like a power note or a keynote, right? Exactly. Exactly. Um,
1: but I would say for again for some disciplines and some faculty, that's a that's a much more interesting and relevant way to kind of bring the visual into what they're doing. Um, you may have seen another another person to look for in this area is Hans Rosling.
0: Uh-huh. Yes, He's I saw his
1: talk. <laughs> the coolest Ted talk. Effort, right? <laughs> yep. Um, and the way that he'll take, you know, a five dimensional data set right? And he, uh, there's one where he talks about um, uh, life expectancy, uh, fertility rates, um, and then he's got those numbers for a number of countries over a long period of time. Um, and then he's got things kind of color-coded by region. So he, I, if, I'm, if I'm remembering right, he's got five, five dimensions to his data set. And he's got this beautiful animation where these bubbles are the, oh, the size of the population, that's the fifth one, right? So, so he's got these bubbles, these circles that are, that are moving around this two-dimensional graph, right? One dimension is, is life expectancy, the other is fertility rate, the size of the bubble represents the population size, the color of the bubble represents the, the region of the world, and then the time, it represents, well, time, right? It's an animated graph. And to he- hear him kind of tell the story of how around the world in different regions as different kind of social events are happening, you see this reflected in um, the life expectancy and the fertility rates, right? The AIDS epidemic in Africa over the, um, the the 80s and 90s just kind of takes all the all the African countries kind of down on the list in a, in a, in a really kind of disturbing way, but you see it right there in the data. Um, it's really powerful, actually, and that's that's uh, he, he does a great job of finding stories and telling stories in complex data sets through these visualization techniques.
0: Yeah, he's a great I- example of uh, so- someone to go look to for, for using these visuals in, in interesting ways. Both, I think that get at both the um, do a good job on the concep- conceptual side, which as you mentioned, is important in, in math or science. Um, but then also in a very shareable, understandable way for a broader audience, too. That combination is really cool. Um, wow. We've mentioned a lot of good and very interesting books and resources uh, throughout this conversation, which is great. Thank you for sharing all those. Um, and since we're hitting about the hour mark, we should probably wrap our conversation wrap up our conversation, but um, to end it, where can folks find all of the awesome stuff that, that you are doing and sharing online? Where should folks go to find that information?
1: Yeah, head for um, DerekBruff.org. That's D-E-R-E-K-B-R-U-F-F dot O-R-G. That's my main website. Um, I've got a blog there that I've been running for a few years. Um, I've got some resources there on visual thinking, on teaching with technology, some other topics. I'm also on Twitter, at Derek Brough. Um, I'm pretty, pretty active there. So I'd love for
0: folks to connect with me uh, via Twitter as well. Great. Well, Derek, thank you for chatting today. Uh, I look forward to, to following your work and maybe having another conversation uh, in a few months or, or a year from now to see see what else you're doing and, and what else is going on within the education community and the VizThink community and all of the cool mixes be- between those. Great. Well, thanks so much for having me on the podcast. I've,
1: I've really enjoyed our conversation here today.
0: Thank you, Derek Bruff, once again, for, for joining us on the podcast. I enjoyed every direction that that conversation took, and I hope, I hope you guys did too. Uh, one thing that we didn't have a chance to talk about on the air, but we did end up talking about after I stopped the recording, was um, the tool of, uh, of Prezi, which is a really cool tool way to create these presentations that have this visual form and allow you to incorporate a lot of the things that we were talking about, both the structure of a concept map and making it really easy to employ visual metaphors. Um, So I have linked to some of Derek's prezzies. He's done, he's put together some, some prezzies specifically on the topic of uh, visual thinking in education, which I think will be some useful anchors to the, the conversation that we had on the podcast. So I linked to some of those prezzies as well as all of the other things that that came up during our conversation. And you can find all those at the show notes for this episode, which can be found at verbaltovisual.com slash episode 16. I wish you the best of luck as you continue incorporating these visual metaphors and this visual structure uh, into your classroom if you're an educator, uh, into your own processing if you're an individual who's developing this skill. And just as Derek has seen some of his students create some really interesting things and contribute to the knowledge generation that, that is already going on on campuses all around the world. Uh, I look forward to seeing what you create with this skill that, that you are developing. So uh, keep on making things, keep on sharing things, and I will talk to you next time. Till then.